what I discovered was every single time I would work with someone like this, if they had the courage and the humility and the commitment to really look at themselves dead on, to say, who am I? What's important to me? How do other people see me? What's the impact I have on others? That they would inevitably make these incredible transformations, not just in their effectiveness, but in their success as a human. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Neil Blumenthal, and it is, the key to an ideal workplace is one hyphenated word self-awareness. Our guest today, Dr. Tasha Eric, is an organizational psychologist and one of the world's leading experts on both human behavior and business savviness. She's worked directly with 20,000 leaders, spoken to over 100,000 people, and used psychology and science to help them achieve dramatic and measurable change. Her clients included the NBA, Walmart, Salesforce, and many more, and her TED Talks have been viewed more than 6 million times. Thinkers 50 named Dr. Yurik, one of the top 30 emerging management thinkers in the world, and a top 50 world leader in coaching. Tasha, welcome. Excited to have you join us on the Elevate podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. So I always like to say, if you, if you looked at my uh, preschool report card, uh, you, you'd see some, a lot of similarities <laughs> between uh, tendencies today and, and that I had then. And, and a lot of interests start early. So I always like to ask this, what, were you interested in psychology and human behavior uh, from a young age? What got you into it from a career perspective? My childhood was um, definitely instrumental in shaping you know, what I feel is my life's work. I'm a third generation entrepreneur and I grew up with a single mom who um, basically to create a viable future for she and I um, started her own business. And it was a, the first school in the country that trained and certified nannies to be placed in the homes of, it was you know, 1980s. So there were a lot of wow. um, sort of single parents and dual income parents. And I got to follow her, literally follow her around the office and watch her be a CEO. And from a very young age, I was always extremely interested in people. Um, I'm an introvert, so I, I didn't always want to be part of the action, but I remember even being very young and you know following my mom around and watching these interactions she had where she was coaching someone or she was standing up during a staff meeting and you know it sort of went dormant for a while. I, I had this you know twenty two year interlude or so where I, I did theater <laughs> um, and in a self-awareness moment, I decided I was probably not good enough to do it professionally, but I spent most of my childhood doing that. But in college, I, I came back to this idea of like the intersection of human behavior and business and the two things that I was so passionate about. And being a, you know, sort of naive 20-year-old, I thought like, oh, maybe I could invent this field. And it turned out the field of organizational psychology had been around since World War II. <laughs> but luckily, it was already there. So I could go study it and really make it my life's work. Yeah, well, it's interesting, the history of how much it's changed, right? A, a lot of that was to get... Originally, it was to get people to sort of you know, tailorism to get them to sort of operate as machinery, right? And and now the field has, it's really doing the opposite these days, which is how to deal with their their human side. Exactly. Um, if you look at the origins of this field, you know it it really kind of grew during World War II, yeah. where um, the military was using industrial organizational psychologists to help place people, right? Like, given your strengths, where should you be deployed? But even before that, it was to help, you know, to grossly oversimplify it, but to help factories be more efficient yeah. and, and, you know, make things quicker. And there was this mentality, you know, it's called theory X versus theory Y of workers being, you know, unmotivated and lazy and ultimately replaceable. And the world that we live in now is, has completely changed. And so it's about how to get people to follow you because they want to and how to motivate them and how to bring out the best in them. And, I think that's all for the better. Right, because that was all, it was all carrot stick. Right, right, right. right. Not, yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of sticks, not as many carrots <laughs> <Right>. even. <laughs> exactly. So when did you decide to take the leap and pursue a PhD? 
It was towards the end of uh, college. I, I, my senior year, September was 9-11. And I had sort of been toying with maybe going to grad school, but I just remember having this clarity about, you know, I need to go all in on this. If this is something, I actually moved to New York the summer of my junior year to take a class at NYU because it was such a specialized field that, you know, nobody really offered classes in organizational psychology. And I just had this moment of like, all right, I'm going to go all in. And so I, I, without even really thinking too much about it for better or for worse, I applied to a bunch of PhD programs and got to pick my favorite one. And, you know, that was almost 20 years ago. I thought you were going to say after 9-11, you realized there was no job, so you might as well go to school. That would have been a good rationale, too. It, I wish I could say I was that practical. Like, yeah. I assessed the situation. I determined, ultimately, no. But I was just like, I, I got to go for this. <laughs> All right. So you got your PhD. And then what was your first professional experience after that? Oh, gosh. Well, I actually had my first um, consulting engagement uh, my second year of my PhD program. So I was 21 which seems crazy that this would have even been possible. But my, my very first client was actually New Belgium Brewing, um, which you know back then was kind of a sleepy little craft brewer and now is, is huge, obviously. But I had the opportunity to work with them and to be the point person on their employee survey. And I remember just walking in like, oh, I'm going to present to the CEO and the board because that's what I do. You know, that's what I do. And, and from a self-awareness standpoint, knowing that you know, this is what we're talking about today, like sometimes in life it can benefit us to not know how in over our heads we are. Oh, it's 100%. very rare, but right. And so I just went in and I nailed it and they loved me and I love them. And, you know, I think if I hadn't have had that sort of boundless confidence, maybe I wouldn't have gotten so passionate about, you know, where I wanted to specialize was working with executives and CEOs. Um, yeah, but really grateful for that opportunity. And then I went into the Fortune 500 world. I spent time leading leadership development at a global engineering company. And then I went to work at a hospital for a couple of years and then went out on my own uh, about 10 years ago. It's interesting that you shared that story. I, I've told a few times our our UK uh, division of our company organized this 24-hour charity London to Paris bike ride that was 170 miles over 24 hours. And I didn't really pay a lot of attention to it. In, in terms of, I signed up for it, right? I'm CEO, go support the team. I, I got on the bike, I did my workout. And then three days before I started reading all the material about what we were doing and how long we were going for and not sleeping. And I was like, oh, if I had really read all of this, I probably wouldn't have believed that I can do it. So, so sometimes it, it does help to be a little, little delusional. Right. And it's, and, and it comes with risk, right? Yeah. So by, by jumping in headfirst without reading the fine print, we are assuming some amount of risk, but yeah, it's, it's a rare situation, but I think there's somewhere, you know, sheer effort and just trying your hardest can get you, you know, some amount of success. All right. So now I want to dig in and talk about your work a little bit, especially your book Insight and your TEDx talk on self-awareness. Self-awareness is one of my favorite subjects, not because I'm self-aware. In fact, your stats would probably say that, you know, if I think I am, I'm not. But I, what I've always said from, and, and we'll talk about this too, from a company standpoint, is that for hiring, if I could blood test people and you could give me one quality that I would just base the whole interview on based on my experience now 13 years is self-awareness. <laughs> and, and I've talked to my team about that because somehow everything else sort of derives about that. So how did you, how did you dive into this and make this your key area of focus? Was it something you were always interested in or you just like you started to see this and, and, and gravitated towards it? A little bit of both, I think. I, you know, again, I, I specialize in working with very senior, very powerful people. Um, and I often get paid, frankly, to tell them the truth when no one else will. That's, you know, that's part of the value that I bring as an executive coach and I feel um, that I should bring, right? Yeah. And what I kept seeing over and over and over were um, leaders who usually up until that point had been immensely successful. But for whatever reason, I was brought in, you know, either to prepare them for what was next or because there was, you know, something they were doing that was getting in their own way. And what I discovered was every single time I would work with someone like this, if they had the courage and the humility and the commitment to really look at themselves dead on, to say, who am I? What's important to me? how do other people see me? What's the impact I have on others? That they would inevitably make these incredible transformations, 
not just in their effectiveness, but in their success as a human, right? The, in the type of spouse they were, the parent they were, the friend they were. And I started, you know, after seeing so many of these transformations, I started to look around in the world and, and I said, you know, if anything, the quality of self-awareness seems to be getting more and more rare. And I remember the, the year I finally dove into this from a research standpoint, it was like December, um, you know, it was the holidays, everything was kind of slow. And I read this article, um, I think it was in Forbes, on self-awareness. And it said, you know, self-awareness is critically important. But there wasn't a lot of data around it. Um, yeah. And there were some exceptions. But at the time, it was one of those things that was more of like a platitude. And so I started going into the research and I was really shocked to discover that we actually didn't know as much as one would think we knew. So what I tried to do was I compiled a research team. This was, you know, six years ago now. And what we wanted to find out was scientifically and empirically, what is self-awareness really? You know, what type of knowledge is it made up of? Where does it come from? Why do we need it? And then probably most important, how do we get more of it? Um, and it's just been this research program, you know, it's sort of the first of its kind that we know of, but it's had all these twists and turns. And what we discovered in the course of our program was that a lot of the most commonly accepted truths that most people hold about self-awareness are wrong. <laughs> so then it's no wonder so many of us, including me, have a lot of work to do. Well, that starts at the top, right? So how do you define self-awareness? So uh, we spent almost a year in our team <laughs> trying to define this empirically, surveying thousands of people, reading, you know, almost a thousand empirical studies. And um, it's the simplicity on the other side of complexity. So, so here's, here's what we landed on. Is that self-awareness at, at sort of a high level is the will and skill to see ourselves clearly. But when we drill down into one more level of detail, it starts to become really interesting. Self-awareness is made up of two types of self-knowledge that are completely independent of each other. So number one, self-aware people build something we named internal self-awareness. And what that is, is seeing ourselves clearly, knowing who we are, what we stand for, what we want, you know, what are our patterns of behavior. But at the same time, number two, self-aware people are also externally self-aware. And external self-awareness, in a nutshell, is understanding how other people see us, right? The impact we have on others, how um, we are viewed by people that are not us. And it becomes really interesting when you think about it that way, because to truly be self-aware, we have to develop both types of self-knowledge. And the route to get there is really different. And that's where this delicate dance comes into play of balancing the way we see ourselves with the way other people see us and then valuing both of those perspectives. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, 
all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. So I'm thinking back to the the Johari window concept mm-hmm. a little bit, which sounds related to this. So it seems like if you don't have that internal clarity, then you're then externally you might just be a little blind. But if you do have that internal clarity and you don't have it externally, then there's, it's probably some self consciousness or something where you're not you're not willing to let others see you as you actually are. Is that right? Wrong? Yes, it, it's exactly right. So we've found that there are basically four archetypes of self awareness. If we have these sort of internal and external dimensions, yeah. we can start to look at people that are low on both, high on both, high on one, low on the other. Obviously, we all want to be high on both. Um, those We call those people aware. Um, if you're low on both, so if you don't have a clear perspective of sort of what you want and who you are or how other people see you, you're what we've named a seeker. And most seekers are just at the beginning of their journey. I'm more confident than I ever was even before this research program that self-awareness is infinitely learnable. And, and they sort of have, they can decide which one they want to start with. But I think if you have high one and low on the other, for example, let's say you're really clear on your internal self-awareness, what you want, what you value, what makes you happy, but you don't understand the impact you're having on other people or how they see you, you're what we have named an introspector. And introspectors are great because they've done, you know, part of the work. But what they risk is, you know, if they don't have an understanding of how other people see them, they can get blindsided. They can have, you know, outcomes that totally surprise them. Like, oh my gosh, I thought I was a shoe in for that promotion and I didn't get it. Or, you know, something really dramatic can happen. They can, they can get fired or they can, you know, their spouse can leave them and they'll say, what was wrong? Usually it's less dramatic, but for people who are introspectors, their journey is really to figure out how to see myself clearly from the outside in. But then if you flip that, people who don't have that clarity internally, but are focused on how other people see them, a lot of that we call them pleasers. They're, they're going to make decisions, right. not because it makes them happy, but because it makes them be seen a certain way or it serves other people. And so the challenge for pleasers is to say, you know, what the heck do I want? And how can I live a life that is meaningful and fulfilling to me? Fascinating. All right, we're going to take a quick break uh, for a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with Dr. Yurik. Hey, everyone. I'm excited to share that my new book, Friday Forward, Inspiration and Motivation to End Your Week Stronger Than It Started, releases on September 1st. My Friday Forward newsletter has inspired over 200,000 readers, and this book is a curated collection and update of the 52 most impactful stories from the series. Each story is intentionally written to challenge you to improve at work and in life, and to lead others to do the same. If you enjoy the conversations on this show, you'll get a lot out of this book. Learn how to make lasting changes in your life, motivate others, and impact people you haven't even met. Get Friday Forward in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook on September 1st. And for more information, go to www.fridayforwardbook.com. That's www.fridayforwardbook.com. And we're back. So we were talking about these elements before the break. And, and one thing I should have asked you from the top, set the stage here. I know you shared some stats. How many people are self-aware versus how many people think they're self-aware? Because I think that is just a meta indicator in itself of, of the problem. We've found that about 95% of people believe that they are self-aware, but only about 10 to 15% of us actually are. <laughs> And that's pretty, you know, that's pretty <laughs> arresting. Uh, and, and the joke I always make to people at this point is, you know what this means, right? It means that on a good day, 80% of us are lying to ourselves about whether we're lying to ourselves. <laughs> and, you know, the true irony of all of this, at least from my perspective, is I went into this research program thinking that I was the best possible person to teach everyone else about their self-awareness deficits, right? Yeah. And what I have discovered over and over and over um, is that I, I too was not as self-aware as I thought. And in addition to that, I've discovered that that's okay. And this is actually a journey that we're all in together. 
Well, you also shared some comments uh, that I think interesting to this in terms of thinking about working on it on the relationship of self-awareness and introspection. I don't think it's what people would would perceive. Yeah, this was actually one of the most surprising findings from our research program, and that's what makes it so important. So uh, just to kind of back up and give the context, one of the first studies we did in our program was a really simple investigation. We surveyed something like 300 people. And what I wanted to look at was how much time are they spending introspecting, so kind of analyzing their thoughts and feelings and motives, and then how self-aware were they, as well as how, you know, what was their quality of life. And what we found, what I, what I thought we would find was that the more time you spent introspecting, the more self-aware you were and the better off, right? Obviously. Yeah. And the results were literally the opposite. So here's what we found. We found that the more time people spent introspecting, the less self-aware they were, A. B, the worse off they were in their lives. So they were more anxious, more stressed, more depressed, um, less happy, less in control, less satisfied with their jobs and their relationships. And, you know, these consequences got more dramatic the more they spent time introspecting. And so at first I had this moment of like, oh my God, self-awareness is bad. <laughs> so maybe I should be writing a book on blissful ignorance and, you know, completely change the topic of this, of this program. But as we dug into, you know, what was going on here, we discovered something really intriguing and that it was essentially you know, again, to sort of vastly oversimplify this, it's not that introspection in and of itself isn't helpful. It's that most people who introspect are making mistakes. There's no feedback loop. Well, yeah, and they, there's a lot to it, but, but yeah. they're typically asking the wrong questions. They have a false sense of confidence about the answer. Um, they're usually wrong. And then the questions they're asking actually make them more depressed and sort of less empowered. So it, it was one of the first times in this project where we were like, wait a minute, we can't assume anything. You know, there's all this common wisdom that all you have to do to be self-aware is to go, you know, sit on a beach in the lotus position and you'll find the answers. And it turns out it wasn't that simple. Yeah. It would occur to me how important communication is in this. And, and in a work setting, I'll give you a couple examples that, that we've had. I'd love to hear your take on them. So one is, you know, I'll hear a story through the grapevine about how a manager had a conversation with an employee that it just probably wasn't going to work out. And this employee was terribly surprised. And that, that's what I'll hear the story. And I'll actually go into the performance management system and I'll look back at a couple quarters. And I mean, seems like a lot of tension there. The employee's not happy. The manager's documenting things when they go wrong. And I'm reading through this being like, it seems clear to me, where was it missed? I mean, is it... I'm not totally sure the question here, but I, I struggle in a lot of these cases to be like, are people interpreting the same data differently? Like what happened? Do they need to just really like a little more radical candor to make sure they're like making the point they want to make? Because I, I've seen this pattern in 13 years, several times, and I'm always just a little surprised by it. Yeah, well, there are probably a lot of things going on there. And without knowing more, it would be hard to sort of firmly come down yeah. on, you know, this is the problem. But I, you know, let's even assume that radical candor is happening. I think the events of, of the last couple of months have made it pretty clear just how willfully we can deny reality. Yeah. Right? Of like, this information does not fit in with my view of the world or my view of myself. And therefore, I'm going to do a number of things that essentially result in me explaining it away. Sort of think, oh, that person wouldn't know communication skills if they knocked them, you know, over, her over the head with them, right? And, yeah. and so we, we usually, you know, we can demonize the person telling us. We can uh, question whether they are really accurate. Um, I think there's a lot of things that we can do even when we're hearing the truth, which according to our research, most people don't. <laughs> so I, there's a lot of things that can go wrong there. And it's no wonder most of us have more work to do than we think. So is that on the receiver? Because it always is interesting in an organization because then that person goes to other peers. And this is why I tell everyone in the company and that, that whatever story they've heard is 50% at best, right? Because then they go to their peers and they say, 
I was really blindsided by that. And I think anyone looking at the data would say, well, how are you blindsided given the last couple of performance reviews and all these discussions? There's just something missing there. So is that... Is it something that the person just has to work on or, or is there something that the other person has to do to help create that self-awareness? Well, probably the answer is yes to both. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, you know, I, I get a, a, when I'm speaking, you know, well, before when I would speak to audiences yeah. all around the world about this work, one of the most common questions I would get is, yeah, yeah, this is all important. I know I have to be more self-aware, but how do I deal with other people who aren't self-aware? <laughs> And it's a fair question. It's a very fair question. But at the end of the day, I like to advise people to focus on the things that are under their control. Yeah. You know, for example, there are a lot of things we can do to better manage the impact unaware people have on us. But ultimately, I would encourage people to direct that energy as much as possible to their own journey. Now, there's a caveat to that, of course, which is if you are a manager, it is literally your job to help your employees be more self-aware. So I, I think there's a little bit of a caveat there. Um, I, I wrote an article for Harvard Business Review about this a little while ago. Maybe we can, I don't know if we can post it in the show notes or anything about sure, yeah. dealing with unself-aware people. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't encourage anyone to shirk their responsibility if that's in your formal job description. But beyond that, as much as we can turn that energy to our own journey, I think we're going to be the most, we're going to be the best off. But there is something around clarity of communication. So another exercise we did because we tried to model difficult conversations in a leadership training. So we gave people roles and they didn't know the role of the other person. And they came in in front of a group to a mock check-in. And one person's there asking when they're going to get promoted. And the other person's kind of telling this person they might not make it. <laughs> and wow. th- so we wanted them to come in. Th- those are each of their scripts, right? And, and we wanted them to come into the check-in and see and have this discussion in front of people. And they're both kind of like dancing around. And then we did like a freeze and we asked the room, how many people think that this person knows that their job is at risk? And no one, no one sort of raised their hand. So it was interesting because they both were really clear in their mind around what they were coming in. But then the discussion started and they kind of each danced around their position. And so I could actually see in that case how they would each walk back thinking, you know, well, that person really understood that their job was on the line. And the other person right. said, well, I'm really close to a promotion when, when <laughs> that was not the narrative. That's brilliant. <laughs> That's such a brilliant exercise. And I think it underscores the importance of the fact that there are these two perspectives to self-awareness, both of which are important. It's our own view of our behavior and our ability to understand how we're seen by others. And if we don't have both of those perspectives, we're going to miss something. We should do an experiment on that. I remember the person, it was really impactful for them when, when we asked the, the entire room whether they thought that the person listening was hearing this difficult message and, and no one raised their hand. You know, so I, you know, they thought that they were delivering a clear, but this is where I do think it becomes a communication problem at some point. Again, you, you, you might think you're delivering something clearly, but if you can't confirm it was received, then you might have a big gap there. Right. Yeah. If the definition of communication is other people understanding what you're trying to say, um, there's room for improvement. Right. So we're in the middle of this, maybe towards the end, by the time this comes out, this COVID-19 crisis right now. And I've, you and I have been in lots of groups with other uh, leaders, other CEO coaches. I've been lots of discussions with other leaders in our own company. And one of the, the key things I've heard from a lot of people, I'd love to get your thought on it, is that and, and I think there is a little uh, generational aspect to this. Some of it is probably just consistent over time with younger experience and, or versus younger. But it seems like the people that are really struggling have not been able to come to some level of self-awareness with what actually is going on and that it's not business as usual and mm. that it's whatever two months ago is not, is not today. And, and, they're really, they're, again, they're the people in a company that's just gone through layoffs asking when promotion and raises are and stuff like that. And this is what I'm hearing. I'd love to get your, your thoughts on this. And, and if you've seen this or in the conversations you have, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think um, the first comment I'd make is there's a whole field of psychology called disaster psychology that looks at how people respond to you know, acute crises. 
And this is arguably the first time in modern history that everyone in the world, you know, to yeah. some extent <laughs> is experiencing a collective crisis. And so the first thing I want to say is I think this needs to be a time where we give ourselves and each other as much grace as we possibly can manage. Just speaking personally, I, I've really been struggling with this. I've been yeah. struggling with, you know, the the loss of my livelihood and, and my speaking business. And I've had a couple people say things to me like, well, I'm surprised you're taking it this hard. It's like, what yeah. are you talking about? You're surprised I'm taking it this hard? So I want to say that before I would give you sort of the pat answer that, you know, of me as a scientist and just yeah. start with... Like, that's the personal answer, right? So yeah, the, the we'll, we'll distance, answer. right. We'll distance that. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the professional answer is, is a couple of things. We need some dissonance in order to get that. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Yeah. If I was telling other people what they should do, here's what I'd say. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, there's it's sort of a twofold realization that has to happen for somebody to be in a situation where they're seeing everything clearly. One is to fully appreciate the reality of what's happening. Because, you know, there's, I hear a lot of coaches that we know say, well, when things get back to normal in a couple of months, it's like, is that really even feasible or plausible? You know, so I I think until we have a a somewhat reality-based assessment of the situation, we're not able to really even get to that self-awareness place, right? If we're seeing the world with rose-colored glasses, we're going to keep seeing ourselves that way. But I think, you know, once we sort of have an appreciation of the gravity of the situation, um, self-awareness becomes hugely important. So kind of in two main ways. Number one, I think, in terms of managing the day-to-day anxiety, the day-to-day needs of you and your family, what we've discovered in our research is people who are self-aware are really great at sort of identifying their emotions when they're having them. They're therefore better at not always managing them, but at least recognizing them and and appreciating them. And that makes a big difference. Another thing is, for example, um, if you're self-aware in this situation, you might know what boundaries you need to set. We're, We're living in this like Lord of the Flies society now where we've completely had to rebuild everything. And it's like, you know, maybe I don't want to be on a two hour family Zoom call after I've been on Zoom meetings for eight (laughs) hours. You know, like maybe that's something I, so there is a certain level of self-awareness that's required. So you're not just doing, you're not just accepting all of these invitations without thinking about, you know, what do I really need and what do I need to do for my family? So I I think that's the first piece. The second piece of where self-awareness really comes into play is, you know, what's the you after this crisis going to look like? Is this an opportunity to recalibrate? Are you going to need to recalibrate, you know, based on the situation? And so to kind of think about what matters most to you, what are you good at? What do you want to do? And a lot of that is sort of scenario planning because no one knows what the future holds. But I think having a self-aware lens to look at what might be next is a really powerful approach. Because then, then you're basically designing, you know, even if it's not the life you wanted, you're designing uh, the best life possible given the cards we've all been dealt. Harvard Business Review provides information, tools, and practical advice on leadership, management, and strategy through the hbr.org website, their print publication, and their podcast. hbr.org is your go-to for leadership and business management articles. A recent favorite is stop eliminating perfectly good candidates by asking them the wrong questions. Then there are other world-famous case studies which premium subscribers can access as well. HBR produces a number of leading podcasts from HBR on leadership to my favorite, the HBR IdeaCast podcast. A subscription to HBR also includes access to videos, the big idea, HBR magazine, and a wide variety of newsletters. While much of the Harvard Business Review content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, there's been a lot of people sharing uh, Jim Collins, and he, and he reposted something last week, the Stockdale paradox. You know, his his principle from Good to Great about how all, all these companies that that really endured and were great over the long run had an existential moment. And when he when when they researched the leadership, and this was from an Admiral Stockdale who was tortured and for seven years in a camp and, and until he got out, the the magic formula was this absolute resoluteness that there would be a future and it would be a defining moment and it would be better and there was a vision, but combined with addressing the brutal facts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't know if you know this story, when they asked, Stock, when Collins asked Stockdale, well, who are the people that didn't make it out of the camp? His, he said, oh, that's easy. That, it was the optimists. And Collins was like, what do you mean? Like, wouldn't they be the ones? He said, no, no, they're the ones who always thought they'd be out by Christmas and they basically died of a broken heart every time Christmas came. And I do think there's some element of that today of, yes, you need, right, take stock of who you are and the vision and where you're going to go. But, and this is also how leaders choose to be aware of the facts and then present them to their team. There are some brutal facts out there. And the quicker I think people face awareness with those, the, the better they are in, in decision making. Just like you said, if you're, if you're planning your whole thing on business going back to normal in, in two months, that may be like the, person who thought they were going home by Christmas. Right. I think you're exactly right. And it's almost like the first step, there's no getting around appreciating sort of those brutal facts and the reality of the situation. But, you know, if we look at our, our mutual friend, Alan Mulally, yeah. who brought forward basically from the brink of bankruptcy to, you know, their second most profitable year ever in less than five years, his whole thing was, if we don't know what's really happening, that's the scary part. If we're not basing our, our decisions off of facts and data, there's no, we have no prayer of being successful. But he, what he said is, you know, in a crisis, it can be our finest hour, but only if we're anchored in reality. Yeah, you and I were at the same meeting where he said when he when he took over Ford and they had their first meeting and they came in and, you know, it's red light, green light, yellow light, and everyone comes in with all, all green lights. And he said, what am I missing, guys? We're on track to lose $17 billion this year. How, how do you guys all have green lights on all, all your metrics? <laughs> right. Like, unless that's the plan, in which case we're doing really well, like probably everything shouldn't be green in our 320 metrics. <laughs> yeah, I remember that specifically. That was very, very funny. And then, right, then some people started showing up with yellow and red the next week. So, but, but right, I mean, that, right, he was a leader who also made it safe for people to be a little bit self-aware. Exactly, exactly. And, and, you know, I think part of it too is there's a lot that leaders don't have control over right now. Yeah. All right. So the question I've been really wanting to ask, and I know a lot of people on my team want me to ask, so excited to come back to this, which is I've always said that if there was one thing we could test potential new employees for, like a blood test, and it would determine 100% or 0%, it would be self-awareness because we have just seen that that is like the key thing that impacts everyone else when we hire someone. So for people looking at adding people to their team, you know, how would you suggest that they interview for, look for uh, self-awareness or traits, given the stats, apparently not many people are self-aware. So people that are more self-aware. This is such a great question. And I'm actually going to keep it simple and practical. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of assessments that can be done and, you know, a lot of great companies doing that. But I'm a fan of um, asking the following question. Uh, behavioral interviewing is, is a great way to um, predict future behavior by asking how people have behaved in the past. But there's a little self-awareness nuance to this one that I just love. Um, the question is, tell me about a mistake you made, either at work or at home. What happened? What did you learn? And what do you do differently now? 
Um, and I actually have some very personal experience with this question. I've been asking it since, you know, I was in the Fortune 500 world more than 12 years ago now. Um, and there was a gentleman that we were interviewing. He was going to be a dotted line report to me. And so I wasn't the ultimate decision maker, but I got to interview him. I asked the question. He looked at me. He said, well, what do you mean? And I said, um, any mistake, no matter how small. And he just sort of blankly stared and he said, well, I, I can't answer that question. And I said, why? And he said, I've never made a mistake. So I go running to the office of the person who, you know, is going to be his official supervisor after this and said, please, for the love of God, don't hire this guy. He's trouble. Um, and they ended up hiring him anyway. And we actually had to end up paying him to go away because he was yeah. such a troublesome uh, employee for a number of reasons. And so to me, I think that's just the case in point of you're really looking under the hood when you ask someone a question like that. There's going to be some people who... Um, demonstrate that they are not, in fact, aware of the mistakes they've made. There are going to be some people who answer it, you know, in a, in a pat way or, you know, tell me about your biggest weakness. But I think if you can ask that question, a lot of people will show you a remarkable level of self-awareness. And I think those are the people that, that we should be pulling even closer to us than even, you know, three months ago. So that's, that's a great question. What we've learned, actually, is you need to train behavioral base interviewers on on what answers to listen for and i would argue that that should raise red flags <laughs> for an interview <laughs> what and if it doesn't then, then they need more training can you give a little more of like what like what a worrisome but not as obvious answer would, would like and what a good answer looks like just so people can yeah. know like what they're listening for Sure. So I think, you know, it almost doesn't matter how egregious something is. So I wouldn't give extra points for somebody who admits making a huge mistake. Yeah. What I think you're looking for there is the process of realizing that they did something wrong and then probably more important, the humility to admit it, even if it's something small. So I, uh, I called a meeting with all of our most important clients and uh, through a clerical error, we left out our most important client. And I realized that was on me. And I knew that I had to make it right. I knew that I had made a mistake. Um, I called that client personally. I told them what happened. And now moving forward, we have a system in place to make sure that never happens again. No, I don't think it needs to be like a, a bearing your soul moment. But it's me. What I'm hearing is like yeah. my fault, my mistake, my remedy, not other people. That's it. Yeah. My mom, I grew up with a, a mom who was raised by two amazing parents in Bay City, Michigan. And what they taught her and she taught me is when you mess up, you fess up, you stand up and you clean it up. And I think if I like you that. look for each of those parts of the response, um, you've got a great potential employee. That's a good one. Um, that may be coming to a, a quote box near you. <laughs> and so that's a good one. And then what is a, like a, a, a uh, not as obviously terrible one sound like, but what does it sound like when, when they're kind of trying to act self-aware, but they're not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think there's, that one's a little squirrelier, but what I would look for are um, anything that's trying to make them sort of appear a certain way. So um, the biggest mistake I've made was being too much of a perfectionist. Yeah. Right, like things that are really not mistakes, but they're trying to make look like a mistake because they want to get an A plus for their answer. Um, so I think it's as long as somebody is really genuinely owning and admitting even a small mistake and then showing some awareness or ability to correct for it in the future, you know, I think that's what you want to hear. Awesome. Well, that will be, hopefully that will save a lot of you from a lot of mistakes out there. This is our public service of the day. Yeah, public service announcement. Until the blood test is available, uh, problem is all the doctors in the world are working on solving a different problem right now. Tell me about loving critics and why this may be the, one of the keys to developing our self-awareness. So in our research on you know, these highly self-aware people who didn't start out that way, we were pretty surprised when we looked at how they got feedback. And, you know, to sort of vastly oversimplify this, I was expecting them to say, oh my gosh, I love getting feedback from everybody. Anytime someone says, can I give you some feedback? I get really excited and I want to hear what they say. Um, and we actually found the opposite. Most of those people had less than a handful of individuals that they regularly sought feedback from. And each of those people and their kind of, you know, handful of folks shared two common characteristics. And I think this is really, really instructive and important for the rest of us. So number one, a good feedback giver had to be someone that they felt had their best interest at heart. 
So this would be, you know, workplace frenemies need not apply. Um, they don't have to be someone that we're super, super close to, but I think we have to feel confident in our gut that they want us to be successful. The second characteristic, um, which is rare in two people to have both, um, is that we also have to be confident that these people will tell us the truth, especially when it's hard to hear. And so a good contender um, for, again, this sort of loving critic, which I'll put together in a second, is you know, if you're looking at a person and saying, would this be a good source of feedback? Even if they haven't given you direct and blunt feedback, maybe you can think of a time in a meeting where they were willing to put the elephant on the table that nobody else would, right? Or they're um, somebody that you can always look to for sort of a devil's advocate perspective. If you put those things together, someone who wants you to be successful, who will tell you the truth, you have what we named loving critics. And, um, you know, I mentioned my mom a second ago. My mom is a good example of someone who checks one of those boxes, but not yeah. both, right? <laughs> Every time I write a newsletter, I say, mom, how, how, you know, yeah. what did you think of this one? She says, oh, honey, it's the best thing you've ever written every time. Um, and that's good for the ego. Not, not radical candor. That's uh, ruinous <laughs> empathy, right? And Kim Scott's, it is. yeah. <laughs> it is, exactly. I love her work. Um, so, yeah, so I think we spend so much time focusing on how we ask for feedback, that most of us miss the even more important question, which is who should I ask for feedback from? Did you hear the Adam Grant and Tim Ferriss in their podcast when they chatted about how they each have a challenge network? Um, yes, that, that was in the podcast that he said uh, Insight was one of the three books he recommends the most often. Yes. <laughs> so I was listening to that part, especially. That's how you know someone really wants to improve, right? When they literally have built a group to challenge them. That's so incredible. I actually, so speaking of books, do you have any upcoming books or new research in the writing stage that we should know about? I do. Um, it's early and difficult. Um, you know, all of us that write books know how hard it is at the beginning, but I'm, I'm starting a project where I'm looking at um, sort of the wrongs, harms, hurts, and betrayals that people experience at work which I'm calling ever so scientifically bad things. <laughs> yeah. um, but we're starting a project to interview uh, 500 working adults about their experiences. And ultimately what I'm hoping this book will turn into is a resource for people to rise up and bounce back when um, we are inevitably wronged or harmed at work, whether it's something very small or something very big. But, you know, it's always a long slog. It's so interesting and so fun. So I, I'm, I'm excited to start this process. Do you have a, a, an ETA or, or it's too early? Uh, 2027. That <laughs> that's <like>? good. <laughs> then you'll hit the under. So that's good. Exactly. <laughs> right now, next month feels like next year. So that's it. Yeah. I'm just trying to take it day by day and saying, you know, did I do my best to work on the book today and not impose any non-self-compassionate goals right. that are not fair to expect? All right. So, you know, the last question I normally ask people, and I swear to God, this is the question. If you listen to the other episodes, what's a personal professional mistake that you learned the most from, <laughs> which was <laughs> the interview question, literally almost verbatim. So I, I had to hold back my laughter, but I, I'll alter it a little bit for you. So what's a personal example or a professional when you wish you had had more self-awareness? Oh, gosh, how long do you have? Um, <laughs> that's one thing. I think I mentioned this earlier. I, it's been really stunning to discover my own lack of self-awareness throughout this project, especially thinking I had so much of it to start. Um, it, so here's a funny story. When I was recently talking to my mother-in-law, and um, I've been married to my husband for more than 10 years, you know, just I have great in-laws. I kind of won the lottery. And she's a little bit sassy, you know, and that's why I like her is you never know what she's going to say. And so I, Suzanne said, Tasha, uh, do you remember the first time we met? And I kind of like had this smile on my face. And I just remember this lovely dinner and this nice Italian restaurant. And oh, I was so dazzling. And they fell in love with me immediately. And then she just sort of like pauses and looks at me and goes, you talked the whole time. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, that's new information. <laughs> And I think, you know, it's a good example of those little micro moments of awareness. Like, obviously, I was nervous. I wanted to make a good impression. I was trying too hard. Um, and it's funny because we had that conversation more than 10 years later, um, and I had no idea. So it's uh, um, always opportunities to learn more about ourselves, no matter how much time has gone by. That's a great story. All right. Well, where can people learn more about you and your work? 
So what I've learned is it's not about me. Um, it's about your, um, your listeners. And so we, we put out a resource for the launch of Insight back in 2017 that we didn't intend to keep up this long, but it's been so popular that we just keep it up as kind of a, another public service. Um, it's called the Insight Quiz. And what it is is a 14-question um, subset of our bigger, more validated self-awareness assessment. And you fill out the 14 questions. It takes about five minutes. You send a survey through our automated process to someone who knows you well, maybe a loving critic, who can fill out the survey on how they see you. And then you get this really cool report back on kind of your high-level internal and external self-awareness, plus a couple of things you can do starting tomorrow to improve. And we just we like to have it there to help the world be more self-aware. And I think a really good question to ask for any of us at this point is like, where do I stand right now? Um, yeah. And so if anybody wants to take advantage of that, you can find it at insight-quiz.com. You might, might not like what you learn, but it'll be valuable. <laughs> well, it's, it's a journey, right? Yeah. And it's not a fixed point in time. It's just like losing weight after the holidays. Yeah. You have to get on the scale and yeah. you've got to see what's the reality so, so you can create the life you really want. Or, or after COVID-19. Uh, oh my yeah. God, don't even get me started. <laughs> There'll be a lot of memes about that, I'm sure. So... Well, Tasha, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. This has been a lot of fun. It was great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. To our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We will include links to Dr. Yurik and all her work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode or other episodes of the Elevate podcast, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show and the content. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, all you have to do is hit the library icon, click on Elevate, scroll down to the bottom and leave your review. It only takes a few seconds. Thanks again for your continued support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.